Are you offering your clients the experience they really want? Or are you offering them what you think they want? Join hosts Laura Gregg and David Partain from FlexShares Exchange Traded Funds as they talk with a variety of industry experts and advisors, just like you, about their latest industry research to help you develop the flexible mindset you need to rise above the crowd. Hello, and welcome to the Flexible Advisor podcast. I'm Laura Gregg, and for all of you that tune in regularly to hear my fabulous co-host, David Partain, I'm sorry to tell you that he could not make this recording, but I will do my very best to add some puns along the way so you feel like he's here in spirit. Now, today on the show, we're going to focus again on FlexShare's recent behavioral research study the new rules of growing wallet share, a behavioral study on the emotions that drive clients' decisions. One of the architects of this research, Barnaby Rydell of Radical, is joining us today to talk about the research, how it was constructed, fielded, and also what we have on the horizon. Now, Barnaby and his partner, Alyssa Rydell, are founders of Radical, a social research firm focused on the financial industry. Barnaby and Alyssa were trained at the University of Chicago and have spent the last nearly two decades trying to better understand the money stories of high net worth investors and how their advisors can best serve them. Now, Flexures has partnered with Radical on some of our most critical research programs, advisor wellness, the gender nuances, and how high net worth primary breadwinners experience wealth management, and insights into how advisors and consumers think about diversity, equity, and inclusion, and DE&I's impact on the advisory industry. Beyond the work that Barnaby and Alyssa have done for us at FlexShares, they've also served large, well-known asset managers and advisory firms across the industry. And to say they are passionate would be an understatement. Curiosity guides them and their passion for our industry and their work helps us all understand the behavioral aspects of the advisory business. And their work has been a guiding light for us at FlexShares as we have been building out our research-based practice management programs. Barnaby, it is hard to believe that you have not been on the Flexible Advisor before, but I am so glad you're joining me today to talk about what has been one of our most sought-after research programs. Oh, great. Well, thank you for that introduction, Laura. It's great to be on the podcast. I've been uh, watching and listening from the sidelines, wondering when I was going to get my invitation. So (laughs) I'm I'm finally here. It's great to be here. You know, we've worked on some fabulous research programs with you guys at FlexShares, but this has by far been one of the most interesting for us. And it's been so fun to see the insights find traction you know, with advisors and really start to make a difference in how they think about their clients and how they drive value in those relationships. So uh, yeah, thanks for having me. Excited to discuss the, the study. Yeah, absolutely. And we are, we are thrilled with this traction. It's been keeping me very busy, which I love. <laughs> um, so let's kick it off today, Barnaby, by having you give our listeners some more background on your education and the business that you and Alyssa have built and tell me why it's so radical. Thank you. I'd love to, I'd love to kind of give people a kind of high level 
look at radical. The first thing that's most radical is that I, I you know, we're a husband and wife team. We built this company as a married couple. We, we, we met at the University of Chicago and found our passion for finance and, and the social sciences there together. And, you know, as you, as you well know, Laura, despite the growing interest in behavioral finance over the last few decades in our industry, it's still very much uh, an industry informed by a classical economic worldview. I think we're all trained in this business to think that markets are rational, investors are rational, and people are motivated by price, product, performance. We're radical because much of our research challenges these assumptions, you know, and, and, and in doing so unlocks strategic opportunities for the companies that we partner with. Uh, and these are companies who are unique. They're, they're like flex shares. They aren't afraid to challenge the status quo, think more deeply about topics, you know, really chart the future of finance, which, which we think will be radical, uh, much more radical than, than it is today. Uh, and our approach, like behavioral finance, it comes out of the University of Chicago, where, where I received my PhD, taught for several years in the division of the social sciences. And this is also where I mentioned I met, I met my wife, Alyssa, and where we incubated and first tested the idea of a social science-based research firm that would be dedicated to the financial industry. This was actually in the wake of the 2008 financial collapse. And we just saw that there was an opportunity to think about this industry in a more humane and insightful way. Now, the interesting thing about behavioral finance is if we believe it to be true, and I do think that most of us in this industry accept its terms, uh, which is that people aren't decidedly rational, they are instead motivated by non-rational considerations, then we really, we open the door to all of the social sciences. And I don't think many people understand that that's what they're allowing in the door when they allow behavioral finance in. If behavioral finance is correct, we have to welcome disciplines like anthropology and sociology and psychology to the table. When thinking about financial decision-making, we have to consider things like people's identity, how they tell stories about themselves, how they imagine the good life, answer what it means to live well and flourish. And that's essentially what Radical does as a firm. We apply social science methodologies and theoretical perspectives to strategically important questions in our industry. So, you know, I'll just do a little little shout out, kudos to FlexShares. I should add that you and your team, you know, Laura, already think like we do. And you have come to us with research questions at the cutting edge of our industry, questions we never even thought to ask. And, and WalletShare is one of them. Uh, you guys came to us with this idea that something was lacking in how we were approaching it. Uh, more could be done, more insight was needed. So yeah, we absolutely love how you think and how you just endeavor to provide fresh thinking on some of our industry's toughest questions. So yeah, great to be here. Oh, thanks, Barnaby. And it is such a treat to to work with both of you. You'll allow me to throw some things that I feel kind of crazy thrown at the wall and some some of them stick and some of them don't. And that's okay. A lot of them stick. Yeah. Yeah. Well, when we first contacted you now, gosh, I think it's almost two years ago to discuss this wallet share project. We weren't really sure where we wanted to start. We had been getting some requests across the industry for insights on how advisors could better aggregate assets with their existing clients, because of course, mm-hmm. you know, it's just more efficient 
to grow wallet share with your existing clients rather than enduring the expense and the time that goes with attracting new clients in. Now, you still want to do that, but of course, you want to grow uh, assets with your existing clients as much as you possibly can. And I, I think our first thought, you can correct me if I'm wrong, but I think our first thought is that we would just survey advisors and ask them how they're asking their clients to give them more money and how that's going, what works, what doesn't. But after a few conversations, we came to an agreement that maybe that wasn't the right way to approach it initially. And that perhaps insights from high net worth investors might actually be more beneficial. So I'm hoping you can kind of tell the audience a little bit about what goes into guiding the process on research studies like this with us and other clients, at least in the beginning. Yeah. So, you know, as any good researcher, we always want to think through the the question that we're trying to ask and really be disciplined about about setting up the study in, in, in the way that's going to deliver the most value and just make the most impact on what has already been researched, how the question's already been approached. So I think we realized pretty early on that it would be more beneficial to study not advisors, but how investors think about wallet share, to take uh, what anthropologists call the inside view or the native point of view. You know, if they're they're studying uh, tribal groups in South America, you know, they talk about the natives. Well, the natives here are investors, the clients of advisors, and study how they think about allocating their investments. Like, do they come with an idea already in their mind of how to allocate their investments. Uh, what drives that? What are they thinking when they when they encounter an advisor or work with an advisor in terms of what what portion of my of my pie do I give to any one advisor versus another? And at the time there was really just one answer to the question of winning wallet share from the investor kind of perspective, which was to just earn their trust. Right, that if an advisor can earn an investor's trust, then they will increase wallet share. And of course, this answer leads naturally into what advisors can do to win trust and ultimately, you know, make the ask for more assets. And and that's really what we saw in the research was all of this kind of practice management recommendation for how to change the advisor's behavior in relationship to just this question of winning trust. And so for this reason. So much of the research focused on the advisor and their behavior and not the investor and what they're thinking. And there was something that felt kind of unsatisfactory to us about that. For one, it kind of lumped all investors into the same bucket, right? Uh, And we know clients are not the same. Anthropologists also like to say, you know, different fields, different grasshoppers, right? So we know that we're dealing with a diverse population of people. And the idea that we would just talk about building trust and assume that doing that with one kind of investor would would lead to trust with another felt unsatisfactory. Investors, you know, what they brought to the table did seem to remain kind of a black box. So this is one reason we were motivated to recruit also a diverse population of investors. And I know for you and your team, Laura, it's just really important to have a good representation of people from diverse regional, ethnic, and racial backgrounds. And so, you know, we really, we really crafted our sample around the demographics of the United States. So we wanted to make sure this wasn't just another study about investors without consideration for that. We didn't want to assume that what would work for an Asian investor 
you know, would work for a white or African-American investor. So that was it was critical to not only focus on investors uh, instead of advisors, but also to get a good sample of investors, making sure that they were they were also diverse in background. And yeah, the diversity thing, I I think that probably took us the longest period of time to Mm. try to get that right. And beyond racial diversity, you know, we looked, you looked across genders and ages and, and a lot of different things. And, you know, I think some of the things we find found that we'll probably get into a little bit later is that, you know, like all, you know, women don't think the same, neither do all Asian investors or all African-American investors in terms of how they develop trust with their advisors and what their expectations are, because it really kind of goes back to those lived experiences, right? That's right. That's right. Yep. And uh, yeah, one of the things we found is that race did not uh, end up a predictive factor of how people thought about wallet share. Yeah. Yeah. But the last thing that we wanted to do is to deliver a survey of what white middle-aged men thought. Yeah. And that's a very important segment of the market, but we wanted to do more with this research. So you helped exactly. us get there. Exactly. Um, and as you know, once we finally decided to pull the bullet on this study, which was a, a big decision, it was a very large scale project that would take us some time. Um, but you know me, as soon as I decide I've got the budget, I can do this, let's get it done. Yeah. And uh, I think it was then you said, well, you know, slow down. I think we need to do two surveys. And um <laughs> I, if I remember correctly, I made you work very hard along with David to convince us that we actually did need to conduct two sub- subsequent surveys. Um, but you did your job well, and I'm, I'm so glad that we, we took the extra time, made the extra investment to have a qualitative survey and then a quantitative survey to corroborate the first one. So if you would, tell the audience a little bit about both of the surveys that we did and why you were really firm on our need to commit to doing both of those and not just sending out an online survey. Yeah. So uh, just briefly, I'll go into this. It's kind of like the uh, the a peek behind the scenes of the research shop. When you're conducting insight-driven work, where you're looking for new perspectives, you, 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 you usually want to start with some kind of qualitative approach. And there are lots of different approaches you can use, observational, phenomenological, ethnographic. You can also just have people talk to you uh, and do in-depth interviews, which is what we did in this case. But the idea is to let them author their own experience at the beginning. So you don't come with any preconceived understandings of what's important or what matters but simply allow the research subjects to to author and and voice their own experiences without any preconceptions. And that's really where new ideas are found. And then those can be tested and validated using more of a quantitative phase, which in this case was phase two, the survey. And and the reason why, you know, surveys are great for, for validating and testing, and sometimes you can discover new things. But the thing about a survey is you have to know what the answer options are ahead of time in order to build a survey. You have to know what the what the important questions are to ask. You have to know what A, B, C, or D is in the answer options. 
And, and so they're great validating tool, tools, but you want them, they're going to be most powerful when they're informed by true insights from a qualitative phase where you're allowing your subjects to, to really author what, what actually does matter, how they actually do think about this problem. So in the case of the wallet share study, we did in-depth interviews in phase one, where we generated new ideas about the wallet share problem. And then in phase two, we tested them with a large nationally representative sample so we could have that statistical rigor behind the ideas. Yeah. And if I, I recall correctly, you did somewhere in the neighborhood of 35 in-depth interviews in that, that first phase. And some of those conversations went almost two hours. That's right. You, you really took the time to get to understand you know, the story behind the story. And, you know, I'm grateful because I've, I've been doing this research thing for, you know, even before I got to engage with you and Alyssa. And there's always the, you know, the the bummer feeling when when you're out presenting and you share a statistic and somebody says, well, what about that? And then you're like, oh, I wish I would have thought to ask that follow-up question. And so this qualitative end of it really does guide that. That's right. That's right. Exactly. Yeah. And it's fun for me too, because I also never know what I'm going to hear. I do all the interviews myself and guide those conversations. And when you go in, you really, you should have no idea what you're going to find. And you should, you know, come in with a well-defined interview guide and know how you're going to prompt people. But ultimately, you're letting them author their experience and you don't really know where it's going to go. But pretty early on in this study, it was apparent that people told very different stories. So we would ask them like, look, just tell me the story of how you've worked with financial advisors. Where does that story begin? Think of it as a story, break it up into chapters, like just tell me everything about that experience. And, you know, within seven to eight interviews, it was pretty clear that people told different stories about allocating their money to advisors. So in one interview, somebody would explain how they were using a few advisors at the same time to see how well they did compared to one another. In the next interview, I'd be hearing how another investor collected her advisors over the years, you know, almost by happenstance, depending on her phase of life, her job, whatever her 401k plan had been at the time, the uh, advisor that was appointed to her. And at the, you know, at the time of life that she was in now, she had three advisors, all of which were managing a different piece of her portfolio. Uh, in the next interview, you know, I heard an investor explain how they moved all of their money from one advisor to the next and that they'd never work with more than one advisor at a time. So you have, you know, auto automatically you start hearing different stories. But what happens in qualitative research is this shift where you go from hearing a bunch of different stories to starting to realize that these stories start to, to fit into categories, right? There are patterns and commonalities. There are differences, obviously, but the differences are constrained. And so pretty quickly, we identified five kind of personas of wallet share. And if you'd like, I can, I can go through them quickly. Would that be helpful? Yeah, I do think that would be helpful. Okay. Um, so yeah, so the, the, the first is, well, I'll tell you all five. There's the simplifier, the verifier, the collector, the competitor, and the protector. Uh, the simplifier is about 28% of our, our population and their guiding principles. Look, keep it simple. Uh, they want to make everything as easy as possible. They tend to allocate all of their funds, available funds at once to one advisor. They never want to work with more than one advisor. 
Um, and they're most interested in, in kind of finding a personal relationship, less interested in getting into the complicated details. There's the verifier. Uh, this represents about 40% of the population we found. And they are their principle is trust, but verify. And uh, you know people like this in your life. They're willing to allocate a good portion of their assets, not all of them, in order to establish a relationship and really test whether the service is going to be the consolidated solution they're looking for, right? But not all at once. And really what they're looking for is excellent service. They're kind of testing you as an advisor. And they're, 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 they're kind of imagining a life course of this relationship where eventually everything will be custodied with one advisor. Uh, the collect- and I'd even, I'd yeah. even say, Barnaby, that they're looking for a, a, an overwhelmingly positive experience, client mm-hmm. experience. I mean, you know, you, you gave us some great case studies that we've talked about where, you know, gentleman who lost his wife, who's never was, you know, really into the relationship with the financial advisor, just understood and learned by having such a great team serve him, Yeah, how much they really cared about him as a person and not just the, the uh, portfolio that they were managing. And that really changed everything for him in terms of his loyalty to that wealth management team. And it was that experience. Totally, totally. Yeah. He he talked about his his wife was the relationship person, right? But Mm -hmm. then when when she passed and they were immediately there with a gift of condolence and just phone calls to make sure that he was okay and that they were on top of everything. Yeah, it just made a world of difference for him. And yeah, he was a verifier and that solidified his trust basically for all time. So yeah, then there's the collector, about 22% of the population. These are the people who talk about uh, never putting their eggs in one basket. They want to spread out the assets, also want to gain different perspectives. And they like at least temporarily to be put in the position of the quarterback where they're kind of managing uh, a couple advisors, maybe a few advisors at once. They often don't tell the advisors about each other. I thought that was interesting. And, uh, and then there's the competitor represents about 7% of the population. So in our research, the smallest set, but these people are, their principle is foster a competition. Let's, let's let the horses run and see who ends up in first place. They seek out performance. They like to play advisors against one another and often against themselves and their own investing prowess. And then lastly, there's the protector representing about 10% of the population. They want to risk as little as possible. They don't trust the industry. They've, 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 they're skeptical of advisors and they, they invest often the minimum amount to experience what the service is going to be without risking much. And they lean towards doing it themselves. And the point here is that each of these personas have a different way of thinking about building a relationship and they have different hurdles, they have different interests and knowing them is actually critical to building trust. Trust is important to all of them, but how it's built is really dependent upon the the kind of understanding that they themselves bring to the wallet share question ahead of time. So that's why it's so important to know them. And, you know, one of the things that I found, I think, surprising a little bit at the beginning is how many of these personas hide the money from their advisors. They don't tell them about all the assets that they have. And, you know, and just for years working with advisors, so many, you know, tell me why I know everything that they have. 
And, um, you know, it just calls into question that. And so, you know, as people build trust, I would assume that they become a little more transparent uh, with sharing with their advisors, really, how much is at play? Yeah, exactly. I thought that was so interesting, too. Um, You know, simplifiers are definitely going to be the most transparent. They kind of just give you all their money. They don't want it to be complicated. But all of the others we found, there are instances where they just simply don't share. Um, collectors don't want to introduce bias, you know, into the perspectives they're getting, um, even to the detriment of, of having a balanced portfolio. Um, competitors, you know, uh, don't want the advisor to know they're in a competition so that they're not motivated in an, in an, in an unnatural way to, to just do their best. Uh, and protectors, obviously, they're just they they keep everything close to their chest. So, um, yeah, really interesting what they decide to share and not share with their advisor about their assets. So, you know, as you were calling through all of those conversations, many many hours of conversations, and then looking at the data from the online quant survey, what were some of the most surprising findings um, that you had? Oh, great. Um, uh, for me, how naturally the typology emerged, I thought that was really interesting. Um, you know, I, we look for insights that are obvious, but also surprising. And that's like a, it's, it's the magic formula of good research. Uh, you want to you find something that feels intuitively obvious, but that nobody has really discovered before. And so I think just the typology and how organic it feels to investors, but also to advisors when we present this to them, right, Laura, they're like, yeah, I can, I kind of can already think of my, my clients in these buckets. Uh, and, and it's helping me think about them in a fresh way. That's, that's like the best news and, and always uh, so surprising how that comes together. But I also found it incredibly surprising to see how people readily admitted to not having a well thought out or informed strategy for allocating their money. So, um, when we asked them, like, you know, did you have an informed strategy when you decided to give an advisor this amount of money instead of another amount? Only 20% said their strategy was based, uh, uh, their allocation was based on a strategy. Uh, that's a very small number. Uh, the rest are basically admitting it was either just all the money they had. So it's just kind of this is what I have, or that it was an amount they said that felt comfortable at the time. And this corroborates the fact that people's approach to wallet share is driven to a large extent by emotion. And what's most surprising here is the people know that it's driven by emotion. <laughs> like They're like, yeah, I, I actually I didn't have a, a real strategy. It wasn't informed by, by anything other than what felt right. So that was really surprising. I think the second thing, and I'll just mention two others uh, in the interest of time, was just how easily people identified with a persona. So this is also from the investor standpoint, they can easily see themselves in a persona. So we had several ways of asking them in the survey to identify themselves. For instance, we asked them to identify their approach to allocating their investments and gave them you know, the five persona options without the persona label, obviously. Mm-hmm. Um, so like the simplifier, they could say, I prefer having one advisor who I can easily move everything over to at once or the protector. Look, I'm skeptical of the industry and approach financial advisors with caution or the competitor. You know, I, I prefer having multiple advisors and comparing their performance. People 
very quickly knew which box to check for themselves. We would have never known to ask them about these if we hadn't done the, the qualitative in advance. And then later we would ask them to identify things like, you know, why are you currently investing the amount that you're investing? And we would have in a different words, the personas. And, and there was a lot of correlation between how they identified their approach and why they are currently investing the amount that they do. You know, they type themselves consistently. And that was really important for the research to, to just kind of validate this. And then lastly, I'll, I'll, I'll say the, the final surprising thing, at least for this conversation that I'll bring up, is that 40% of investors admitted to changing their approach over time. So one question is, do these, do these personas just like, are they enduring aspects of personality? There's nothing advisors can do to change them. People just are who they are. Um, but that's actually not true. People... Uh, understand that their approach is malleable. They see that approach as changing over time. They actually typically describe that, that change as a function of the relationship with the advisor. The advisor, knowing the persona that an individual client has, suddenly has a lot of latitude to kind of move them along a continuum of trust where they are coaching personas you know, into greater and greater degrees of, uh, of, of trust in a relationship. So, you know, advisors can address each persona strategically. They can move them towards greater and greater consolidation, you know, and, and just high level what we found overall, and this is kind of like, you know, the icing on the cake, which is if invest, like investors we found who had more consolidated portfolios, just, they had better experiences. Like when advisors can build trust based on what different personas are looking for, they are actually making those investors happier, less stressed out. They're building deeper relationships. They're driving greater satisfaction. So, you know, it's a win-win when trust can be built and having more nuance on how to do that, you know, should benefit both advisors and investors alike. Yeah. And I, you know, there's another thing that I really wanted to explore because it came out, I think, pretty loud and clear. And um, I can relate to this one. The, the idea that so many of the people that you talked to and that we surveyed just didn't want to feel like they were being sold. Um, and as someone who spent my entire career in sales organization, that really goes against what we're taught, right? It's, you know, the ABC, always be closing, ask for the right. sale. You know, whatever it is that you learned in your last sales training, this research kind of turns it upside down. Mm -hmm. And if it would be great if you could tell advisors what they should be doing mm. to grow wallet shares if their clients are just totally turned off by the ask. What's, yeah. what's the right dance that they need to have? Great question. Yeah, um, I agree. I think we're always told, look, always be closing, you know, wait for the right time and then ask the question, make the ask. And it's all about like, when do you do that? Mm -hmm. And we heard, you know, you don't do that. Generally, it's like, uh, it's like fight club, you know, don't talk about wallet share. And the reason is, is because it's emotional. And we ask people, did you have strong feelings? about the amount you initially invested. And the majority of people said, yes, I had strong feelings about it. And as any of you know, when people have strong feelings about something, you know, you are wise to, 
you know, not confront them directly about it. And it's an emotional thing, what people decide to trust to an advisor. And so you have to go about it indirectly. And that's, that's also what we shed, shed, you know, some light on is when you know these personas, you know, kind of how to dance to your point, Laura, you want to speak to the persona, you know, not to the wallet. Uh, and, and so you do that with, uh, with different strategies. So for instance, with the competitor, you want to bring attention to the long game. They're often anchored on short-term performance, reinforced being on the same team, right? Just, just, you know, so you, you guys against the world, they want to fight, but make sure they see you as on their team, not as a, a, a horse that they're racing in some other competition, the protector, you know, they are worried there are absolutely no rules to this game and that, that everything's untrustworthy and suspicious and kind of like a wild west. And so you're really wise. You know, you see someone that's cautious, see someone that's nervous, reinforce the rules of investing, the rules of how the market work, give them a sense of stability and security and just how, how things will work, how things do work the rules of the game. That's going to do enormous amounts of good for their sense of, of peace and trust in you. Uh, and that will lead to, to more wallet share. Always wait for these people also, obviously. Don't, don't hurry them along. Uh, the collectors, they ultimately end up wanting a simpler approach. They have a, a collection of advisors uh, and it over time becomes a burden for them to manage. So appeal to simplification. Uh, and to planning again, if they're keeping their advisors uh, in the dark on one another, then you know they're probably thinking just about performance. Talk about planning conversations with these with these people. Um, you can often identify them when they ask. You know, you know, I heard this is a good strategy. What do you think about that? They're they're often parlaying advice they got from another advisor to get a perspective from their other advisor. So you can identify them through that, uh, and then change the conversation to, to more of a planning a planning focus. I'll just quickly go through the verifier. You know, you want to identify the missing pieces in their plan. Often these are people who feel pretty savvy. So you can demonstrate value by poking holes in, in how they've thought about things uh, and just take a more holistic approach. And as, as Laura, you've mentioned, really deliver a positive client experience. Show that you're proactive. I think most of the, the, the typical industry recommendations for growing wallet share fit with the verifier. You want to show that you are exceptional at delivering on the, 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 the goals that they have for the relationship. And then lastly, the simplifier. You know, People may think you don't have to do much with the simplifier, but I think uh, often that leads to one, not a good communication of the complete menu of services. So there may be money that you use left on the sideline simply because you assume you already have all of it. You should be make them aware of the complete menu of services and make use of scheduled check-ins to see if anything's changed. But the biggest point here is don't grow complacent. Uh, the simplifiers may be the quickest to give over the greatest percentage, but they're also the quickest to switch. They have no problem picking up all their assets and moving to another advisor. That doesn't feel stressful or anxious for them. They just do it because they're also very trusting. So yeah, those are some of the different ways you would dance with each persona in order to drive trust. Yeah. And the, you know, the big takeaway is you're going to have to ask at some point, right? But it, it just can't be every conversation. You, you've got to do those asks after you've been building the trust, after you can see the relationship moving. Otherwise, you may have an unintended consequence of 
your client, you know, being turned off by you. I know, you know, several of the people right. you interviewed, if not more said, you know, they seem greedy. They're always asking me for more right. money. So you, you just have to figure out that dance by taking the time to get to know your clients. Yeah, that's right. Yep. And, you know, I mean, really at the core of this research, right. It, it, it's that we've learned that people really do want relationships with their advisors. They want to trust the person that's working on their behalf. They want to know that person sees them as a a human, a person, and not an investment portfolio. And these are not, nor should they be, surprising findings. But as you talked about earlier, there are still so many advisors that are still not approaching their practice, their business was this behavioral mindset. They're still caught into the, uh, you know, the alpha and the beta and, you know, the, the mm. stock selection. So I'm, I'm wondering in terms of the other work that, that you've done, maybe outside of flex shares, is this a common theme that you see and what can advisors do better or differently to, you know, really grasp that behavioral insight and understand their clients' money stories? Yeah, that's, um, I actually, I feel like a lot of what we do at Radical could be used by advisors to drive relationships, understanding, and to unlock themselves from, you know, kind of where we started at the beginning from this idea that people are rational. They're just looking for, you know, to maximize efficiency or to to outperform the market. And, you know, I think advisors typically want to get into conversations. A lot of advisors want to get into conversations about the markets and where the best investment is, but that can often be at the, at the detriment of really understanding what your clients care about and what actually drives their decision to, to trust you with more of their assets. At Radical, we talk about the importance of the unspoken things. Right, the things that are on people's minds that you know that they never share or that are below the surface that we're all aware of, right? But for whatever reason, we just never give each other a chance to talk about. And in in my interviewing and in our in our approaches, we're always trying to get people to like giving them a venue to share things that they don't otherwise have, right? To to share and talk about those unspoken things. Um, and I think one of the best ways to hear these unspoken things is to just ask your clients to tell their stories. Uh, Laura, you said money stories. I love that idea. You know, to have them t- tell you the story of how they've made their money, their experiences investing and working with financial advisors. I do believe, like, if you give them the chance to speak, they will tell you what's important to them. But you have to you have to pause and not you know, go in with your own assumptions long enough to let them do that. And what's going on below the surface will, will rise up. And before you know it, you're going to have a more intimate relationship, a more informed relationship and a relationship that's based on a greater understanding of one another. You know, if you can identify what matters to people and how they think about their wallet, you will be that much closer to driving wallet share in just an an organic and natural way. Well, that is such great advice. And Barnaby, I really appreciate you coming on the show today and, and talking through some of this research. I am talking about it all the time and it's always great to hear you take it. And uh, you know, you, you made a few points that I'm going to 
steal and, and include in, in uh, my le- next presentation about it. But, you know, for those those of you who are listening, uh, if, if you're interested in what we were talking about today and how to grow WalletShare with your existing clients and you'd like to learn more, you, know, you can absolutely reach out to me directly at lg79 at ntrs.com. That's in the show notes. Or visit our microsite uh, that has all of our wallet research, our white papers. We're going to have some videos up there soon. There's a lot of fun things on there to, to explore. So if you want to check that out, it's uh, go.flexshares.com backslash wallet share. Wallet share is all one word. And, you know, if you'd like to take a walk on the radical side of things, <laughs> and radical, by the way, is R-D-C-L. Um, right. Learn more about what Barnaby and Alyssa are researching about their firm. You know, you won't be disappointed. Their website is www www.rdcl.financial.com. That's rdcl.financial.com. Yeah, and, and actually, uh, just dot oh, financial. Yeah, no, just dot financial, no dot com. Oh. Yeah. All right. Okay, I'm so sorry about that. No, we have like a very uh, weird URL, so <laughs> it's not your fault at all, Laura. <laughs> and, and, you know, well, we'll we'll make sure we have the correct link in the no. show notes. Yeah, I appreciate the <laughs> shout out. Love the shout out. Absolutely, and you know, on behalf of myself and my co-host David Partain, I want to thank you, our listeners, and Barnaby, for joining us on today's episode of the Flexible Advisor. Again, we produce this podcast for you, the advisory community. So if there are other themes that you'd like to see focused on here in the Flexible Advisor, please drop me a line. Let me know. Thank you. Have a great day. Thank you so much, Barnaby. Yeah, thank you, Laura. This has been so fun. And I just uh, just love what you guys are doing at FlexShares. Always keeping it interesting. Thank you. Appreciate it. Thank you for listening to the Flexible Advisor podcast. Click the subscribe button below to be notified when new episodes become available. The information covered and posted represents the views and opinions of the guest and does not necessarily represent the views or opinions of FlexShares Exchange Traded Funds or Northern Trust. All investments involve risk, including possible loss of principal. Before investing, carefully consider the FlexShares investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. This and other information is in the prospectus and a summary prospectus, copies of which may be obtained by visiting www.flexshares.com. Read the prospectus carefully before you invest. Foresight Fund Services, LLC Distributor. The content has been made available for informational and educational purposes only. The content is not intended to be a substitute for professional investing advice. Always seek the advice of your financial advisor or other qualified financial service provider with any questions you may have regarding your investment planning. Although we attempt to keep the information complete and current, we do not warrant that the content herein is accurate, complete, or current. We make no commitment to update the content herein. It is your responsibility to verify any information before relying on it. The content of this podcast may include technical inaccuracies. We may make changes in the products and or services described herein at any time. We provide you this information with the understanding that we are not rendering accounting, legal, or tax advice please consult your legal or tax advisor concerning such matters.